cuts into that they're singing without imagining doing the flute parts. <laughs> they're in my head. Uh, two weeks ago, Chris talked about what makes, us, what makes up our core identity and the other layers that make up our sense of self. At one extreme, people's core identity is empty and they are driven by what other people think of them. At the other extreme, people put themselves in the centre and everything they do becomes self-focused and self-serving. More recently, our society has taken a third approach, she said. We cram everything from the other circles into the centre to create a fake sense of identity, but we try to serve all of it and it's a mess. By contrast, the picture, gives, the picture Jesus gives us is of radical service with a concrete core identity defined not by us but by God. Now that's all about our view of our own core identity. It's how we view ourselves. But how do we view other people? About ourselves, we may put everything in the centre, but when we look at other people, how often do we see just one of the many labels they've got in the centre and we call that one label their identity? We label the parents of our children's friends, not by their name, but as little Johnny's mother or father. We might label people by their profession, their gender and so forth. A guy called Brandon Andrus wrote this in a blog. <coughs> We live in a time in which there are hyper-obsessions with how we describe ourselves, how we label others and put them into categories, how we begin to assign worth and value based on the label a person or group wears and the category in which a person or group identifies, and then how we begin to live in division and conflict, either mentally or physically, with a labelled and categorised person or group, without ever knowing the person behind the label. He continues, the sad and tragic reality is that underneath a label or a classification is a person, a flesh and blood human being, a living and breathing creation with a soul who has been reduced to a cheap descriptor, who is only seen as an easy label for how they are described, who is stereotyped and caricatured, not for the depth of who they are or as one uniquely created by God, but as an object that can be disrespected, diminished and discarded. End of quote. When we label someone, it becomes their identity to us. We're probably a little bit behind on the slides too, Sandra. <laughs> After about slide four. No. Sorry, that must have been my mistake. That's the pictures of the core identity. Keep going. <coughs> we normally do. And the one after that, yep. We normally do have the Bible reading first. I, marked, I changed it up, which marked it up for Sandra. The poor lady has 52 slides to deal with for me. So, <laughs> um, Yeah, when we label someone, it becomes their identity to us. When we label, um, too often we label them with a single label and treat them accordingly. At best, this results in us having only a one-dimensional view of the person. They are simply a work colleague or a supporter of a particular footy team or what they do for a living, a doctor, an IT person, a salesperson and so on. We might label them by where they live, the size of the ute they drive, how their children behave and, so, and all sorts of things like that. Too easily, to us, they can become less a person and more the label that we give them. The label becomes their identity to us. 
So instead of relating to them as a fellow person created in God's image, we may keep them at arm's length behind the identity we assign to them. And maybe therefore we don't love them as Jesus does and we don't witness to them because they're just a service provider or work colleague or whatever. But even more than that, we use labels to categorise people. Then we apply the label to everyone in a group. The whole group gets a single identity. <coughs> in Colossians 3, uh, Jesus broke down those labels. He said, in Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision or an uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, which was a despised racial group, slave and free. But Christ is in all and in, sorry, but Christ is all and in all. The only identity that matters, that really matters, is whether we are in Christ or not in Christ. Which brings us, for example, to John chapter 3, which Danik is going to read for us. It's in your service booklet as well as, in, as, well as up on the screen. Thanks, Danica. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs that you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's room for a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not, but you do not accept our testimony. If I told you about earthly things and you didn't believe, how would you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into a world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For anyone who does evil hates light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth and comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God.
Thanks, Danica. Nicodemus is introduced to us in verse 1 as a Pharisee and a, quote, ruler of the Jews. This places him in Jewish society. As a Pharisee, he belonged to a major group or class of Jews who, were, who fervently and piously followed the Old Testament laws and rituals. Among Jews, they were respected, if not liked, for their seriousness and their diligence. Not only did Nicodemus belong to this respectable group, but he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. So his identity is a pious, respectable, powerful leader among the Jews. In verse 3, the very first thing Jesus says to him is that that identity is not enough. It will not save him. This identity is not sufficient for him to, quote, see the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom means to enter into it. Jesus tells Nicodemus that to see the kingdom of God, a person has to be born again. Actually, the Greek word used can mean either born again or born from above, apparently. Just for once, it's not a translation, translation issue. The actual Greek word could mean both things. Jesus means born from above, that is, born spiritually. But Nicodemus takes it to mean physically being born again. Jesus clears up the misunderstanding in verse 6. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Spiritual birth is necessary to enter the kingdom of God, that is, to be one of God's people. Remember, Nicodemus is a respected senior Jew, but his identity as a leading Pharisee would not save him. It was not sufficient. Only a spiritual birth will enable Nicodemus to enter God's kingdom. Now, verse 8 seems a bit obscure to us, but apparently Greek has the same word for wind, breath and spirit. Jesus uses the pun to emphasise his point. You know the wind is there, but you can't see it or where it came from. Same with the Spirit of God. We cannot understand how the Spirit works spiritual birth in us, but we experience the effects, the effects of it in our life, just as we feel the wind on our bodies. In verse 9, Nicodemus is still puzzled by what Jesus is saying, but Jesus doesn't go easy on him. In verse 10, as a Pharisee and teacher of the law, Jesus expected that Nicodemus should understand spiritual regeneration. It's made clear a number of times in the Old Testament. Just one of several Old Testament examples is Joel chapter 2. From verse 28, After this I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. So Nicodemus should have understood spiritual birth. In verses 11 to 13, Jesus establishes his credentials. The bit about the snake in verse 14 is a reference to an incident recorded in Numbers 21. Looking, up, looking to the snake that was raised up on a pole was the way the Israelites were saved from physical death. Now Nicodemus knew his Old Testament, he would understand. And in the same way, Jesus being lifted up, that's crucified, lifted up onto a cross... That will save all who put their trust in him. This is how we are born spiritually. In verse 15, everyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. This is Jesus' answer to Nicodemus' question of how a person is born of the Spirit. We are born of the Spirit by trusting in Jesus' death on our behalf to save us to eternal life. Now Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus actually ends at verse 15. The Apostle John goes on to emphasise the point in that famous verse 16. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
the only identity that matters is whether we are in Christ or not in Christ. Even having the identity of being a pious, diligent, learned, powerful Jew like Nicodemus, that wasn't enough. Being in Christ is the only identity that matters. While it may not be the main point of the passage, let's consider how Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. Firstly, and it's so obvious we can miss it, Jesus received him and spoke with him. He did not turn him away simply because he was a Pharisee or a member of the Sanhedrin. That will seem strange in a moment, so hold that thought. Secondly, he challenged Nicodemus to expand his understanding, gently criticised Nicodemus for not understanding spiritual birth from the Old Testament. And Jesus explained that his death would offer salvation and eternal life to all who believed in him. We don't see in this passage how Nicodemus responded, but later we see Nicodemus trying to speak up for Jesus in the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus was one of the two men who took Jesus' body down off after crucifixion and placed it in the tomb. We can deduce that he became a believer, a Christian. Sorry. Now let's look at what Jesus said about the men who identified themselves as Pharisees, as a class or as a group of people. Some excerpts from Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Jumping to verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then most tellingly in verse 33, snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? How very differently Jesus spoke about the Pharisees as a group compared with how he spoke with the individual Pharisee, Nicodemus. So why the difference? He spoke fiercely against the Pharisees, the people for whom that was their identity, and they were proud of that identity. And yet he engaged kindly with Nicodemus so that he would come to faith. Coming to trust Jesus was more important to Jesus, evidently, than denouncing the attitudes of the Pharisees to one of their number. Jesus wasn't concerned about the identity, the label of Pharisee. Rather, he engaged with the person. We see Jesus doing much the same in a few other places too. For example, a few weeks ago, Chris preached on Jesus' meeting with a Samaritan woman at a well, which Nikki also talked about in the children's talk today, uh, which was not planned, well, not by us anyway. Uh, it's in chapter 4 of John's Gospel, immediately after the meeting with Nicodemus. So John is contrasting Jesus talking with a highly respected Jew and with an outcast and foreigner who was shunned even amongst her own people. There is no better illustration that eternal life is available to Jesus through, through Jesus to everyone, regardless of who they are. So, the woman at the well. She was someone with a trashed reputation. That was her identity. As Nikki said, five husbands, look, they might have all died, but there were very likely some divorces among them. Jesus clearly spoke of against divorce, Matthew 5, verse 32, and the whole half of Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. And her current de facto partner was immoral too. And yet with all that, 
Jesus dealt compassionately with her, explaining the path to salvation. In fact, she was one of the first people to whom he openly revealed himself to be the Christ. Clearly, she took the message to heart because she went into town and told everyone and Jesus spent two days with them there. Saving people seems to have been more important to Jesus than pronouncing judgment on an individual. And it was certainly more important to him than whatever her identity was. Another example was his encounter with a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, Jesus clearly spoke out against adultery following, obviously, one of the Ten Commandments. In Matthew 5, he says, you, heard, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yet despite that, his response when the woman was brought before him is surprising. In John chapter 8, from verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the centre. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, that is, throw rocks at them until they die. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one, who, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the centre. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on do not sin any more. <coughs> he spoke against adultery, yet treated the woman caught in it compassionately. He would die on the cross to forgive her adultery, provided she repented and, quote, sinned no more, as he instructed her. How must he have felt as he chosen not to condemn her, knowing he would pay her price? He didn't see a label, a person with the identity of adulterer. He saw the person in need of repentance and salvation. Jesus wasn't concerned with the labels applied to people. He saw the person, spoke with them. Basically, he loved them regardless of their identity. We may label groups or categories of sinners, but when we're dealing with an individual, what is more important? To tell them to turn away from their sin? I mean, why would they? Or to tell them about Jesus? Getting back to John chapter 3, we read that Jesus came to save the world, not judge it. Um, verse, 13, uh, verse 17 of John chapter 3. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, like we saw with the woman caught in adultery. Judgment will come later when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. But it's not for us to execute judgment now. In Romans 12, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. So we've looked at how Jesus ignored labels and spoke to people regardless of their identity. So what about us? Now, I want to be clear, what, what we're about to discuss is about people outside the church, those who do not trust in Jesus, or not yet. We'll talk about how this relates to those inside the church a bit later on. 
Paul lists a range of sinful examples a number of places, but for example, Colossians chapter 3. I want to read these out because I think we often label people by actions such as these. For us, they can become people's identity. Paul writes this. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. We should not label the person by their sin. We should not see their sin as their identity. In verse 7, Paul makes the point that the Colossian Christians used to live in these very sins. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. They had turned away from these sins. Their sins were no longer their identity. Another reason why we should not label people by their sin is that that amounts to judging them. And we're instructed not to judge in that way. For example, Romans chapter 2. Every one of you who condemns, sorry, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think, any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? not recognising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Labelling a person by their sin amounts to judging them. Jesus died to forgive their sin if they repent and trust in him. God the Father will judge their sin if they don't repent. In neither case is it up to us to judge. Our job is to see the person behind the label, love them and, if possible, bring them the gospel. If we are not to judge people, we need to set aside the labels. This is often summarised by, by the saying, love the sinner, hate the sin. The Bible doesn't actually say that anywhere, but I think we do see it in Jesus' actions. He labels the group, the Pharisees, adulterers and so on. He hates the sin, but he loves the person, the sinner, even dies to save them from their sin because individuals can break out of the mould and give up their sins through the power of the Spirit. As we saw a few minutes ago in Colossians 3, the Colossian Christians were no longer defined by their sins. They had put them behind them. Now all this leaves us with a problem. I wonder if you've spotted it. Jesus is brutally critical of the identity Pharisee. He is bluntly critical of the labels adultery, divorce and the others we haven't mentioned today. And yet he loves the sinners with those labels. How does he distinguish? Or more to the point, how are we to make that distinction? It starts by realising that there are whole groups of people who are committed to rejecting God and they are proud of it. <coughs> Here are some Bible passages that helpfully show this. Uh, Ephesians 4 from verse 17. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, 
excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Another example is in Romans chapter 1, pulling a few bits to skipping here because it's a long section. Uh, starting in verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodless, so from against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 21, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. From verse 26, for this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. The women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their ever. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but even applaud others who practice them. Hmm, why doesn't he say what he really thinks? Well, back in John chapter 3, where we started, from verse 19 we read this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Why have I read all that? Because from these passages we can see that there are groups of people who are committed to rejecting God and his ways. They have taken a label, an identity, and they are proud of it. The Romans passage I read focuses in on homosexuality. And isn't it true in verse 32 that gay pride groups not only do these things but even applaud those who practice them? But verses 29 and 31 that we just looked at list many other sins which groups of people are committed to which they're proud to have as their identity. Nowadays there are other labels, other identities that we could perhaps add to the list. Pro-abortion, pro-euthanasia, unmarried couples living together, people supporting gay marriage and so on. There are groups of people who have taken on these sins as their label, their identity, and they are proud of it and are committed to it. And these may be groups of people whom God has handed over to their depravity and evil, sadly. So, how do we distinguish whether someone has been handed over to their sin by God or whether they are open to repentance and turning back to him for forgiveness and salvation? How do we discern? Well, firstly and obviously, we talk with the person. Uh, we don't assume. And we pray and we discern through the Holy Spirit. That's all not controversial at all. But I suspect we don't always apply that to sinful groups. We just assume everyone labelled in that group, is lost. If you think back to Jesus' attitude to Nicodemus and to the Pharisees, we can see that Jesus saw Nicodemus as a person first and a Pharisee second. Jesus regarded the group, 
differently to the individual. So what I'm thinking from that, and look, this is just my thinking, so see if you agree. Perhaps we can deduce that if a group is committed to a sinful identity and someone has embraced that group and all that they stand for and taken on that identity themselves, then God perhaps has handed them over to their sin. As C.S. Lewis chillingly wrote, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. People want nothing to do with God. But an individual may repent, whereas a group may not. Let me give you an example that might help, or might not. Two people I've known, and this relates to homosexuality, but the same principle would apply to any of the sins Paul listed in Romans 1 and elsewhere. The first girl was a work colleague, not someone I knew well, but enough to chat to in the tea room. One time she told me about the Sydney gay Mardi Gras that she had just been to and taken part in. The stories she told were awful, of degraded people and degenerate activities that were a violation of natural human dignity, let alone the dignity of beings created, beings created in the image of God. Yet she was pleased and proud to have indulged in those activities and proud to own the identity of someone who did such things. I don't know, but I can imagine that she could be one of those people whom God has handed over to their depravity and evil. On the other hand, there's a lady I'm friends with, initially through a car club, now just in touch on Facebook. She's in a lesbian relationship and they are raising a son. But if you put that aside, she's a respectable woman with a professional career and one who thinks carefully about life's issues. She doesn't define herself by her homosexual relationship, like the Mardi Gras people do. Without wishing to judge, having just said that we're not to judge, she does not appear to fit the mould Paul described in Romans 1 of someone handed over to depravity of mind and spirit. You see, in today's society, a homosexual, relation is, homosexual relationship is considered to be an acceptable choice for some, someone who is otherwise normal, everyday people. And she seems to be someone who has simply made that choice without embracing the depravity of something like the Mardi Gras. So when we meet, for example, a person in a homosexual relationship, I think we need to consider whether they are someone who defines themselves by their homosexuality so that it is their primary and fundamental identity, like in Romans 1, or whether they're a regular person who gets up in the morning, has breakfast, goes to work, goes on holidays, goes out to dinners and concerts or whatever, just like all of us, and has chosen a homosexual relationship. Do we address them via the label or as an individual person? The second lady is maybe no different to any of us. We all have our own particular persistent sins for which we must continually ask for forgiveness through Jesus. Look, sin is rebellion, it is evil, it is wrong, whatever its nature. Let's be clear about that. But let's not be trapped into allowing particular sins to define people. That is a symptom of our current society. To label people, to define their identity based on a single aspect of the person, a single core identity. It reduces a person to a label, not a being created in God's image. We shouldn't follow our society in that way. As Christians, we can all too easily label someone by their sin. And I'm not talking just about homosexuality, that's just an example. We can label people as someone with a police record or who, someone who has been in jail, someone who cheated on their spouse, a tax cheat, a gossip, an arrogant, boastful person or whatever. But are they locking themselves into their sin and proud of it? 
or are they willing to listen to the gospel? We can get sucked into labelling people. Our culture has a big focus on identity like that. Are they committed to the sinful label or are they just people committing a sin like all of us? I need to make one final clarification. As I said before, we've been talking about, uh, all we've been talking about relates to people outside the church. But when someone turns to Christ, that involves repenting of their sin, by definition. We should expect them to step away from their sin, or at least struggle against it and continually repent. If they defiantly embrace their sin and claim it's okay for a Christian to do so, then that's a problem. In 1 Corinthians we read this in chapter 5. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, otherwise you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater and verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge people who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Defiantly persisting in a sin and claiming it's okay to do that as a Christian is not on. So what do we do if we think a fellow believer is defiantly holding on to a sin? How do we help them? Let me give a very brief outline, and it's brief because people have preached entire sermons on this. Firstly, and perhaps most importantly, look, talk to the person privately and check what is actually happening. If the person isn't actually sinning, they will not mind you checking with them. On the contrary, they'll appreciate that you love them enough in Christ to address what could be a sin problem. I've seen it done, and also from personal experience. It's encouraging when someone, sensitively, shows enough Christian love to check with you if you're on the right track. So please, don't be afraid to ask. But if you talk with them and find that they are in fact holding on to a sin, then work through scripture with them, showing them their error. If they say, mm, you can't judge me, then we explain that that is for those outside the church, not in it. The second step, if they persist in their commitment to their sin, is to take it to the person who has pastoral responsibility for them. In the first place in our church, that's their growth group leader, then the church elders. And if they still won't repent of their sin, then it's for the elders to deal with. And ultimately, we exercise church discipline, which following 1 Corinthians 5 that we, that we just read, we will treat the person like an outsider because through their life they are showing that they are identifying as an outsider, as someone whom God has handed over to their defiant, unrepented sin. As we read in Romans 1, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. But that's not the end of it either. Then we pray for the person, that the reality of their situation is impressed upon them by the church discipline and that they will come to see their need to let go of their sin, repent and rejoin God's people. And of course we don't just pray for them, we keep in touch with them as well. To wrap up then, the only identity that matters is whether we are in Christ or not in Christ. I remember a girl I used to know, as a teenager she had constructed a big collage about a metre square of quotes and sayings to express how she had felt growing up. She grew up in an affluent middle class suburb as a child of a broken marriage. 
One phrase in big letters stood out, sick of sex. I know she had used drugs a lot and after a drunken party she was a passenger in a wild car crash which killed her best friend and left her with a permanent injury too. But God had brought her through that. I got to know her when she joined the same growth group as me. And by that time she was leading look, a difficult but faithful Christian life. She was no longer labelled as sexually promiscuous or a drug user or a drunk. Her identity was now that she was in Christ. I bumped into her a few years later. Her life was much more sorted and she was married by then and her faith was solidly established. Individuals can turn away from the labels and sins of their past. God can draw them to himself. We may not be able to change the group identities that are proud of their sin and committed to it, but we can take the gospel to sinners like ourselves in just the same way as we take the gospel to everyone, one person at a time, one by one, regardless of how we label them, what they're doing, who they're with, what they're caught up in. That's what Jesus did. When we've got past the label and seen the person, then we can help them take the next step in their faith journey. We see the person, not the sin. We see the individual, not the label. We see the being created in God's image, not the identity that holds them captive. 